Which way is catering with Justine and Bruce? Served up by Variety Attractions, celebrating 60 years of entertainment excellence. This episode of Which Way is Catering with Justine and Bruce is brought to you by Brannigan, Inc. For nearly two decades, Brannigan, Inc. has energized brands in the entertainment industry, helping fairs and festivals connect with audiences. Their creative, results-driven marketing approach drives attendance and makes communications fun. Check them out at BranniganInc.com. Also, this episode is brought to you by Spectrum Weather Insurance. Spectrum Weather Insurance provides a variety of rain, heat, severe weather, and event cancellation insurance customized for your specific event. They have the experience and expertise that hundreds of events rely on each year. Visit them at SpectrumWeatherInsurance.com. Hi, Clint. Hi. How's it going? I'm well. How are you all? Hey, Good. we're doing great. Good, Good. to see you. He gone. <laughs> Hello again. Hey, everybody. Welcome to an, another episode of Which Way is Catering with Justine and Bruce. Served up by Variety Attractions, celebrating 60 years of entertainment excellence. I saw this headline for our guest today, and I had to use it. Clint, if you don't mind, it's a high-powered Nashville manager. Clint Hyam. If you're going to believe the good stuff, you got to believe the bad stuff, too. <laughs> but I, I, I saw that high-powered. High I was powered. like, no one's ever addressed me as high-powered. <laughs> well, I, I wasn't even aware that was out there, but uh, yes, high powered. That's when you drink just like a lot of espresso in yeah. my book for my personal <laughs> get I need extra strength. Clint, thank you very much for taking the time to be on our podcast today. And I think I want to start out our interview today by asking you, what do you think about when I mention the name Variety Attractions? history and and heritage and i guess are come to mind you know and they're my first memory uh of doing business with my artist and uh prior to that my business partner who's 85 this year had been dealing with him going back probably since the 60s and uh so just great partners and uh we continue to do business today and there's, you know, just a big trust factor on both ends. And uh, your business partner, Dale and uh, George Moffat, the president of Variety Attractions, they were very close over the years, correct? Mutual oh, yeah, respect. Definitely. A lot of good uh, George and Dale stories. And uh, uh, it, it, it's just, they're so part, much a part of the fabric of what we have done and, and experienced. And we still... Uh, like Kenny Chesney, we still go back and have lived those memories and have funny stories today. And we have our George Moffat voice that we do. And <clears throat> so, okay. So you're clearing your voice. So <laughs> I'm going to say, can you give us your best George Moffat impersonation? And then also, can you share a couple of your George Moffat stories? Oh, sure. I, uh, uh, one of the things, uh, one of Dale's funniest stories is that, when Alabama was coming along, uh, 
you know, the country artists wore costumes. The Statler Brothers, Oak Ridge Boys even <clears throat> back then uh, had, you know, straight on costumes. And uh, Alabama was rock and roll and they came in as they were, you know, t-shirts, jeans. And, and Dale was backstage. It might've been the York, Pennsylvania Fair. And uh, it was kind of getting close to showtime. And uh, George says, oh, Dale, don't you think the boys need to be getting ready for the show? <laughs> and Dale says, George, they are ready. And I won't say the quite word what George said, but he said, you're kidding me. <laughs> 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 but uh, so yeah, they go back and he bought so many Alabama dates. And um, I, I imagine they're still doing Alabama shows today. Yeah, we had the pleasure of talking to Tony Conway. So he kind of shared some yeah. of those same great moments with uh, George Moffat in Alabama as well. No, I was another funny one was, you know, because uh, Variety bought a lot of Kenny da Chesney dates. They kept our bus going and we would do a lot of block buys and give them first uh, dibs on everything and make a, a large deal uh, every year. And Kenny had exploded to the you know point where we weren't doing as many fairs and festivals, and but we wanted to be loyal to George and Variety, and so you know we carved out a date. Uh, I think it was in Delaware or something. And Kenny said, you know, we'll sell George the date. Be you know reduce the monies based on what he was getting at the time, and and. Uh, I said, but the only thing, George, is that the fair board cannot ask the audience to sit down, you know, and that's, this was 2002, maybe three. And George says, well, I'll have to get back to you on that. And uh, <laughs> we always knew about George is the artists came and get what, you know, but the fairs stayed consistent and that, and he worked for the, you know, the fairs. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't hear from him and I, we, we needed to know and, I called him back and uh, he says, well, we'll just get Kenny on the way down. He says, I can't make the fair board, you know, do that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was, that was one of the things that the good people at Variety asked us to do was ask you about George and catch you on the way down. Uh, yeah. That seemed like that seemed, that seemed to be a phrase. Well, George has been around long enough. He saw a lot go up and uh, a lot more come down. And mm -hmm. So it was just perfect. You know? Per yeah. He's probably still waiting for Kenny's slowdown. Yeah. He's still happening. waiting for Kenny to yeah, come, come down. on the way down, I guess. <laughs> so on the topic of Kenny Chesney, how did you get Kenny to go from because when he first started out, he was kind of like the George Strait uh, image. How did you get to the point to bring him around to get him to where he is today? It was a, it was an evolution that took. Looking back, it was a blessing we we were able to do it more quietly. Because I I always say that if he had the luxury of having a, you know, I hope you dance or. Uh, a song of the year that would have taken him places that he wouldn't have been able to live up to. He just sort of slowly walked into that, you know, into the career. And, you know, back then it was about the, you know, start shirts and the belt buckles and, and, and then 
Kenny's music always, he always had a love for the beach and the islands and, and sort of, I think it was around 99, uh, you know, he started recording some music that started to have a, a, a hint of that in the music or maybe more than a hint, but that, and it really just, it took a hold and it was more of what Kenny was. And a lot of times artists kind of get caught in a bag because, you know, you're trying to compete and, and radio doesn't usually want to have color outside the lines because they're selling, they're, they're out there to sell advertising. So typically radio has sounded, you know, to me homogenized because they're, they're necessary. They're, they're, the main point is necessarily to, to build superstars but it's for their ratings. So Kenny was just trying to hold on. And, uh, but every time we would go make a record, he would, you know, inch just a little bit further. And we actually got to a place where we had a greatest hits album. And I don't think the industry realized that, wow, this guy had enough songs to do that. And it wasn't it, usually a greatest hits at the time, you know, meant later in your career kind of thing. This was, uh, he didn't really start doing true hard tickets as an arena selling to another year later. So I think we had about an eight year run up to the greatest hits record. And um, so, but you know, it, he, he, he watched, he was a great study of watching other artists and what to do, what not to do. And then sort of, you know, slowly, you know, blossoming into who he is today and you know being authentic and uh, so I think that's you know it's maybe I'm not explaining it that articulately but it, it was over time it wasn't people said did you think Kenny would ever play stadiums said, it wasn't even in our wildest imagination you know mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Our, ours was okay we can have you know your goals kept you we kept moving the goalpost mm -hmm. you know? okay number one record well now we want you know multiples now we want gold platinum records awards everything that go into you know building a well-rounded career mm -hmm. but um so yes a long ways to answer that question but no that's great yeah that's great i wanted to go off the the stadium comment so i think you're gonna have to correct my number but i was reading there was an article that it was like since two in 2016 Kenny had done like 135 stadium tours or hit 135 stadiums. Yeah, I believe it's over 200. That's um, insane. So hmm. how did that original conversation start? I mean, when you said not in your wildest dreams, what was like the light bulb that was like, haha, you know what? Let's go to these ball arenas and these, you know, build these sand pits. And how did that conversation start? Well, um, Louis Messina, who has been a, our promoter for all of these years, he went in and created the George Strait Festival stadium model. After Strait had long uh, been doing the arenas for so long in the same way, and then they you know, went and created something very unique. And we knew we wanted to attach you know, ourselves to Louis's uh, coattails. And uh, so we started out doing you know, arenas with him, small arenas, and then and then larger ones and then amphitheaters. And Louie had the playbook, you know, he had the roadmap. And uh, we opted to do a show in Knoxville, which is his hometown. The only time he's ever played that, that, that stadium. Um, and, uh, you know, and then the next year we 
planted a couple of more and they worked. And then we planted every year, we were doing more and more. And to, you know, some years that's all we did. Mm -hmm. and, um, and we've always taken a big package out. Uh, the culture that happens around his shows is, uh, has been very organic, you know, the tailgating and the, and the party outside of the venue. And there are people that go do that that don't even come in, you know, necessarily to see the show, mm -hmm. which is so cool. Cause you know, that's, that, that's all done on its own kind of thing. And it's based on a culture that he has, you know, and he sums it up with his no shoes nation. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's a community of people that, you know, love music and, and get that culture. It's, it's an instant thing, you know, and, uh, mm -hmm. um, and that's why Kenny does so well up here. We're in Wisconsin and mm -hmm. here in Wisconsin, that's all we do is tailgate. <laughs> I mean, winter, spring, summer, yeah. fall, your backyard. If you have a grill and a cooler, you're tailgating. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Right. You can tailgate anywhere. <laughs> yeah. Let me go back to when you first started in the business, Clint, and you started as an intern at Atlantic Records. And then you moved on with to join Dale Morris when you were working with Dale Morris in the beginning and you were kind of working for gas money. Can you kind of tell us the story when you confronted Dale that you wanted a few bucks more than the gas money? Yeah. yeah so uh, the, when I started at Dale's, I was still an intern, right? Uh, I came over and it was a tank of gas a week. And then um, I don't know, I'd been there six months or so. And, uh, you know, they, I, I could tell they liked me and I liked them. And I didn't really see Dale much at all because he was still very much uh, involved in Alabama and they were, you know, on the road still. And uh, so Jamie, who is still with us today, uh, I went to her and I asked for a hundred dollars and, you know, my, my gas. And so they came back and said 75 and no gas money. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So you took it. So, uh, that, that's it. You know, paid $6 and 96 cents a week in taxes. And, <laughs> <laughs> well, that started your negotiating career right yeah. there. <laughs> yeah, Dale, you didn't, he didn't give you anything. You had to uh, earn it and take it. And, uh, and I was always at the negotiating table and uh, it's been a 28 years later. Uh, we're still together. Yeah, that's awesome. Now, when you started at Atlantic Records, we had the pleasure on our podcast to talk to Phil Carson, who worked mm -hmm. at Atlantic Records uh, in the UK and signed ACDC to that yeah. label and worked with Led Zeppelin mm -hmm. and all that. Did you know when you started at Atlantic Records as an intern, kind of what you were walking into? Or was it just, hey, I got an internship? <laughs> Pretty much, I got an internship. I, keep in mind, I was a student of the country music business going back to age about 11. So I would read the trade magazines and so forth. So when I got to Nashville, it wasn't like, I didn't know these people, but I knew who they were. Mm -hmm. The names, the positions, uh, you know, faces even. And this is pre-internet, right? So mm -hmm. um, I definitely knew, you know, Rick Blackburn, who ran the Nashville division was already, you know, a star. He had, ran, he had ran CBS for a long time and, um, and got to meet uh, Ahmet Erdogan, you know, famous yep. Ahmet. And, uh, and his funny saying was, you know, 
I always tell everybody before platinum, you're going to kiss my ass. <laughs> I'll be kissing yours. <laughs> nice. That's awesome. <laughs> but uh, yeah, Atlantic was, uh, in fact, I still, you know, they don't really have a Nashville division, but I know the folks in, in New York and Craig Kalman and, and, and pretty well. So. So you said you were listening to country music early on. Who were you listening to? Who were some of your favorites early on? And I'm sure over the years you were able to either go see them or meet them down the road. Yeah, my first, uh, when I was a, probably about nine, with the Barbara Mandrell show. And uh, I didn't really know what genres were. My, I know my mom would listen to Christopherson, which I loved his music and Kenny Rogers, late 70s kind of thing. But I, I really wasn't aware of, you know, there was music, but it wasn't genre. And then I was just just mesmerized by this, just, you know, ball of energy who could play these instruments and sing and dance and, you know, and through her show, she had a lot of, you know, folks of, uh, of country music at the time, the Oak Ridge Boys, you know, Alabama and, I loved that early 80s, uh, they called it urban cowboy days. Um, but uh, so, and I got to meet her uh, in the early 80s at about age 11 and she was you know, still white hot and before that car accident that really s slowed her down some. And, uh, and you know, she was so gracious and, and it was, you know, it was a big fair in California and she took the time to, you know, and, and then over the years, I, you know, got to know her producer. I was working in radio and um, my family were in the citrus business. So I would send uh, them oranges <laughs> and nice. send, me, send me records and, you know, and her producer uh, also produced Ronnie Millsap and uh, Steve Warner, I think, and, uh, you know, Sylvia in the day, but uh but Barbara and Ronnie were the big ones. And so, you know, I, I know Tom very, very well today. You know, it's kind of surreal, you know, these mm -hmm. people are, you know, been in my life all of these years pre the business and knowing, you know, I still, still talk to Tom fairly regularly. So um, I didn't know exactly what I was going into at Atlantic. What I didn't like about the record company was it was just about the recordings and it was, you know, they're always chasing the next thing. And I like the fact of management is that you're looking at the whole thing and the whole entire career and it ebbs and flows. And there's going to always be somebody newer, hotter, you know, the latest uh, greatest toy coming out that, that everybody wants to play with. Well, you know, I, but I was more, um, I looked up to the careers that, you know, you know, the Eagles and, you know, Led Zeppelin and, mm -hmm. you know, those people that had, and in country, you know, the Alabamas and, and the Mandrells, those kind of things. And I like the fact that it, it encompassed so much more and it wasn't just short-term thinking, you know. Uh, I remember Randy Owen of Alabama telling Kenny and I one time, he said, you know, you guys will wake up one day and not know a soul at your record company. That sounded very foreign to us, but he was right. Hmm. And so I always say in management, our number one job is to protect 
short-term people with the ability to have long-term impact. Um, I'm going to go back to when you were younger and you met Barbara Mandrell. How did that conversation go? Were you like, <laughs> uh, wow, I'm a big fan? Or, I mean, were you lost for words? Or I'm going to send you a bag of oranges? Or how did that go? Well, she was just, she came off her bus. Uh, it was right after the show. She hadn't even changed into, you know, pedestrian clothes. So she had her sparkly outfit on. And uh, she had the CMA nominations had just came out. So I thought, well, I'm going to, I don't want to sound real fanny. I, I'm, I'm, but I'm 11. So, you know, yeah. what do I, so I <laughs> congratulated her on, you know, being nominated for all these CMAs. And, and, you know, we talked about that and, and, you know, and, and how she had already won it twice. And it's really hard to, you know, win and come back. And, you know, once you, once you have it. And, uh, but, you know, she'd had a really hot year with records and, you know, HBO TV special she had done. So we talked about that, I remember. And I remember her TV show, she had, you know, quit that maybe the year before. So she was asking about, you know, reruns and things like that. And, you know, um, just, just very, she spent, you know, was just as real as, as, as you could imagine. And, um, I, I, it was funny because, well, I won't say this, but um, now she. No, go ahead. She, she was a smoker at the time. So I remember her putting, taking her puff and off in her bus and putting it out and coming on, you know, to meet us. And uh, so, and I just remember that you know, being kind of a surprise. And, and uh, so we were very close today. And, but she, she wanted, she retired in her late forties. And she said, you know, I want to go out on top. I don't want to be an old has been up there, you know, and she, she meant it. I mean, she mm -hmm. never sang a note again. Mm -hmm. That's awesome that you remember mm -hmm. it that vividly, mm -hmm. you know, way back when that's, that's super cool. Clint, when you look at artists, how do you know who you're going to manage and who you're not. Uh, so when you start looking at that process, is it something in your gut, just a feeling by talking to them? How does that all, how does that process work? I think it very much starts with the A&R factor of do I like them or not musically? And then do I like them as human beings as much as you can find out in a couple of meetings? Because uh, I always said there's no stupid superstars. So you want to have someone who's not only has the talent, but has the, uh, the work ethic and perseverance to be able to execute that out. You know, um, I've got an artist, Carly Pierce right now, that's doing well. How I know she's going, whether I was involved or not, she was going to make it because her work ethic is second to none. I mean, she works, outworks everybody. And uh, so, and, but you still have to have the music. So we work very hard on the A&R side. Uh, I don't try to say manipulate their music. I want their truth and what they do to be what they're about. But it, we're all judged by that three minutes of music. I remember, I remember Clint Eastwood saying, you know, an actor's nothing without a script. The same with a singer in a song. Mm -hmm. And uh, if I've seen a lot of singers on the side of the road dead because they lost that they just did, didn't have the, the songs. Mm -hmm. So um, songs trump everything. And then you've got to have, if you're going to have a career, 
you know, you got to have a, a Tom Brady kind of mentality. Mm-hmm. Hopefully you have a Belichick there along the way sure, to help. And when you put those two together, you know, everything, you know, you know there's no end in sight, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's refreshing, Clint, that you describe it like that being a high powered Nashville manager, <laughs> even though this, this, uh, music is a business mm-hmm. that you're still first and foremost, like a fan of the music. I, I the day I'm not is the day I stopped it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I do listen differently. Uh, I listen for competitive reasons, but when I hear an artist that still has the ability to move me in a way that I, I would be a fan of that regardless, that's really when I know it, it's, it's doing something because you know, and music's a creative thing and it's gonna change, it has to change. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things that, you know, I'm in my late forties and, you know, I need to listen to people closer to the tw- in their twenties on the street. And that's how you stay relevant because you don't wanna miss something as well. You know, mm-hmm. uh, Tom T. Hall said, I make and write music for my generation. Today's generation needs to write and record music for theirs. So um, I think some of the biggest record execs that have stayed relevant have always remembered that and surrounded themselves with people that, okay, you know, let's not miss this over here. Mm-hmm. And, um, but yeah, I still very much am a fan of, of, of the music and the songs. Um, I don't know what else I would do. So you have your artists, they have their songs, they're successful. How do you know or suggest that they move on to like the brand level? So like, for instance, Kenny and the, his, uh, rum, Mm -hmm. like, how do you, how do you know, or have the inkling to be like, all right, now let's branch off and do something different. Yeah. It's, that's a very good question. Cause I see a lot of artists, young artists that come up and that's the, almost the first thing they want to talk about. And I Mm -hmm. say, well, okay. The, the branding will come as a byproduct of the music, but the music has to, you know, has to trump everything. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it's not like we started Kenny's career out going, we're gonna be on the beach and in the rum business. It evolved. And then we were sponsored by Cruzan Rum and we moved a lot of bottles of booze for them. And mm-hmm. they sold, and when they sold, because uh, we loved the owners, the previous owners, uh, but Corona beer came to us, which is, hey, can, can you be any more mm-hmm. in sync with our brand than that? And they had been with Jimmy Buffett all those years. So that partnership had ended and we made a deal to be able to develop a rum in tandem with the beer. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was around 07, 08, uh, when the economy took a, you know, a turn mm-hmm. and uh, we never got out of research and development um, with, uh, we, we stayed on with Corona for a few more years. And then I think it was around 2011 uh, at a BMI dinner. I said, look, you know, we, we've got a finite window and we can go create our own. And we've, I mean, it's amazing what you know you can do before you know you can't because uh, I, we had no idea what we were getting into. Uh, 
Um, we knew it was really could only be rum because that made sense with Kenny and his, his brand. It's not like we would go in the vodka business because why a Kenny vodka? Um, mm -hmm. So um, it's been, you know, we're going to surpass 200,000 cases this year in the rum business. And that's as an independent and, um, and it's operating in the black now. And, and I'm really, really proud of that. It's a, taken a lot of work and a lot of capital to, to do it. But I think just to say to a brand new artist, okay, you know, this is who you're going to be in three years. This is who you're going to be in six years. Well, let's get the music and the script down and then let's let the branding evolve, you know, with you. And, you know, as, you, as like a band like Old Dominion, you know, they're involved in uh, tequila. They love tequila. That's their thing. They do a shot of it every night before they go on. And, you know, that association, we've kept, we, you know, a lot of short, well, money that comes along per se to be a pitch person. That, that thing is, I think a lot of it has come and gone. Um, I think artists used to do, used, used to see a lot of that in the eighties and nineties and you don't see that as much anymore. It's not really that cool to go, you know, pimp out paper towels or something. And yeah. <laughs> so I think a lot of artists today are smarter about that. Used to, you know, come along and okay, here's a hundred thousand dollars. I'm going to go, you know, talk about whatever, orange mm -hmm. juice, you know, diapers. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, I, I think artists have to be careful of that because if you get caught in the bag of, you know, just doing it for that, I think mm -hmm. the fans see through that. I will have to dovetail off your Old Dominion because mm -hmm. Justine and I are both big fans of Old Dominion. Mm -hmm. And when I first became a big fan is when they were just getting started and I was attending a fair convention in Las Vegas uh -huh. and they performed at an 8 a.m. <laughs> uh, meeting uh, general session. And I was like, and these guys brought it at 8 a.m. And I was like, I'm a fan from that. Yeah. Just by that work ethic, by here's a, and it wasn't like one guy. It was the whole band, mm -hmm. the whole setup, 8 a.m., you know, a stodgy fair <laughs> crowd that, you know, is just walking in from the night before. <laughs> yeah. And here OD is just belting it out. You know, it's been a really having them has been a gift to me in my life because I didn't really want a group, you know, because you have more than one decision with an artist and that's challenging. And, but the fact that they're adults, they're not 19, they're, they're musicians, they're songwriters, they're a unit. Um, Shane McAnally, who's um, like the number one writer producer in, in town and we've had so much success with his songs. He brought the band to me and at first I was, you know, I don't know if I want a band and he would kept being insistent and I met the guys and then, you know, I was hooked and uh, their determination, they were, you know, willing to, be in a van and trailer, which, you know, most artists wanted an instant bus and, you know, they couldn't afford mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. We just started, you know, brick by brick with them. All the record companies had passed in town. Uh, we ended up going to New York. Uh, Doug Morris was running Sony at the time. And like a day or two later, he was calling us back saying, you know, reciting lyrics and I'm going to sign your band. And, and uh, I could go a lot more in a deep dive into that, but you know, it just, uh, it was something that was meant to be because um, everybody didn't, you know, 
kind of missed that. And mm -hmm. I thought, well, you know, we heard an age thing. We heard, you know, well, it's harder to navigate a group. All I saw was a, a, a unit here of great musicians with great songs who are, who are like rock stars out there. And, and it's kind of an ageless thing. And so mm -hmm. it, here we are. <laughs> yeah, and I, I will have to say, uh, Nate, who we would yeah. talk to about Old Dominion, just talking to him about the band and what he was thinking and the process, I kind of learned a lot about that because he was very calculated mm -hmm. and we're going to do this first and then we're going to do this. It was just really great and refreshing to hear someone just kind of talk about their plan for a band. Mm -hmm. Nate is a warrior and uh, he, uh, he knew my mother in Oregon and uh, I think he interviewed me when he was in high school and then I offered him a, a job that was, I didn't know how long it was going to be. We were doing a record company thing at the time. And I, you know, he was fearless and brought him in there and then, you know, moved him in over as my assistant. And then uh, his ability to, to read the room and know people and, and, and have all that just energy and, and passion. And, and he went after it. He and Will Hitchcock, the, their day, day, their day-to-day -day manager, uh, in our office, um, they've just done amazing things. And I mean, such a laser focused vision on the band. And, and I couldn't be more proud of Nate and, and watching him grow. And he's gonna be one of the biggest agents in, in the business. And, you know, he has that heart and it's not just about, you know, money to him. Mm -hmm. He'll also be a high powered- Nashville, like Nashville manager. manager. <laughs> Speaking of Nashville, Todd Bolton mentioned to us uh, about a kind of a cool house in Nashville called the Alabama House. Mm -hmm. Can you share a little bit about the Alabama House? Sure. You know, back, uh, well, Alabama's from Fort Payne, Alabama. So back when they would come up to Nashville, navigating them in and out of hotel rooms, it was crazy. So Dale built a building and made bedrooms out of it and then had the bar and, you know, and called it the Bama house. And when uh, Dale had the opportunity to sell all of that land and they developed uh, some real estate there, we moved over and we took the, the bar, the horseshoe bar that, you know, if that bar could talk, right? <laughs> yes. We lifted it out of that building and dressed it up a little bit more in our new one. So, uh, and we still have the Alabama logo there and, and, and that bar, but you know, those guys spent a lot of years, you know, almost all my formative years in the business. I can remember them coming to town and you'd see their bus pull out in front and, you know, it was just a private, you know, hideaway for them to come to town, create their music and, and, and have a living space. Mm -hmm. Todd mentioned that that has been some of his favorite memories. Oh yeah, we, oh, yeah. we always held court over there, you know, whether he was holding a dinner or uh, a, a breakfast and, you know, and he'd serve everybody great wine or Bloody Marys if it were a, a breakfast thing. And, and, I, and I, it was an annual thing to have, you know, all the variety folks and Todd and George to come in and, and you know, we, pitch him our latest goods that we mm -hmm. had at the time. And, but they were always loyal, loyal partners. And, you know, 
sort of the essence of what we do in this business and, and I have such a high respect for, for them. And, you know, and I know Todd's really stayed, it's funny because for years, and he says, well, Todd, my new guy. And he says, yeah, I've been there since 1983. Yeah, the new guy. I, and George probably still says that to this probably. day, probably, that Todd's oh, yeah. the new guy. And he are also said that there were some great kind of listening parties uh, there as well, you know, of new music from whether it's Jake Owen or Alabama or whoever it might be, Kenny. And the other thing I was going to approach with you, Clint, is not only are you the high-powered Nashville manager, but then you also got into a little movie producing. Yeah, that was my next thing. Yeah, well, that was just more along the line when we did Kenny's uh, 3D uh, show. So I was just an executive producer on that. But uh, um, we, I think he was one of the few artists or first of the artists that came back when 3D was coming in in vogue of its new and improved version of that. And we had an opportunity to be in all, you know, uh, movie theaters and, and, and it was a, you know, really neat promotion for a, a talk about brand building kind of thing. Yeah. You know? So that was fun. It was a lot of work and I don't plan on getting into the movie business. <laughs> no, 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 I don't not even, not even for the swanky premieres. <laughs> Nah, I'll take <laughs> I'll take a guitar in the in the demos and the recording sessions. Yeah. So being being on the road with these artists, I mean, you must see a lot of different fans and fans with stories on how these artists have affected their lives. Do you have any stories for us on witnessing any of that, the fan interaction with your artists? Yeah, I, I think Kenny, especially, he is in touch with his fans and they are in touch with him, you know. There's an exchange of energy that happens that cannot be duplicated. So COVID has been just, you know, a terrible time, you know, for us all. Uh, but we've all missed the energy of live shows. And uh, so, you know, you see fans, they live, this is sometimes what keeps them, you know, I hear people that's the, what keeps them getting up every day, you know, and, and through an artist's music. And, you know, I, I understand and I relate to that because music has the ability to, to move you through some really tough times and joyous times. And, and so, you know, fans that are, I just know Kenny understands his fan base and they understand him. It's a joint, it's a relationship that keep, just has continued to evolve and grow. And, and now another generation has come in and, you know, you see college kids coming in and it's really cool because it, his brand hasn't aged out because his music feels, people I often hear from the fans, it makes them feel young, you know, it, it um, and he's got a very youthful vibe about him and that, mm -hmm. you know, it's very athletic to show that he does. He, he mm -hmm. trained for that because, you know, you, you're, you're working a big stage and, and he's not just sitting behind a microphone. Um, mm -hmm. And he he works really, really hard to have them in the palm of his hands. And if he doesn't, he really beats himself up. Mm -hmm. You mentioned Old Dominion uh, having a shot at tequila before they go on stage. Have you witnessed or experienced like some odd pre-show rituals uh, in your day? 
Well, I can't talk about any of those now. Oh, come on, Clint. <laughs> boring. Oh. Uh, Kenny Rogers says, you know, he always thought that, you know, being in the entertainment business was always about sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And how disappointed he was when he found out there was really little of all. Because <laughs> <laughs> we've uh, heard some uh, pretty odd ritual things that some acts have done. But, uh, you know, you've, you've kind of probably run the gamut. Yeah, I mean, Kenny gets, he, his, he has a vibe about his shows and, and the culture backstage. And I, we've opened for acts and I've been around other opening acts where you oh, we weren't supposed to talk to the headliner. You weren't supposed to look this way. It was just a thick, bad energy. And we don't have it. You come away having a good time and, mm-hmm. and it's hard work. I mean, we got a well-oiled machine out there, but it starts from that headliner on down. And um, so it's a really fun culture. And Kenny, you know, he works out and, and uh, he does this ice bath during the day because he works out when he's training. And, uh, you know, I guess there's a lot of healing that comes from, and we, we bought him for his birthday. It was a very expensive portable uh, ice bath. Well, it's not actually ice in it, but it's, mm-hmm. it's done like in an insulated kind of metal and you get in it. And uh, he loves to get people shocked in that water. I, I run from it because I, uh, <laughs> He can stay in a couple of minutes, and uh, but I guess it's very therapeutic and and really great for mental clarity and you know depression and all of that. Maybe I should get in it for a couple of hours, but uh, <laughs> yeah, because well, um, you're just freezing your ass off, and that's all you can think of. Yeah, and I'm you know, looking at me, you're not gonna probably get this story, but at one point in my life, I did run a marathon. Oh yeah, enter laughing here. I did. After I ran, I did go in an ice bath. And I think if I wouldn't have done that ice bath, I probably wouldn't have got out of my hotel room for a week. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The amazing time, what it does for recovery is supposed to be pretty incredible. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I forgot you yeah. Not, I, I remembered you did the marathon, but, but I forgot you did the ice bath. Yeah, thing. someone yeah. told me that. And that was like kind of the best, best thing someone ever advice that someone gave me. But let's go back to Dale. I believe he instilled some great things that you carry on to this day. But I know there's three things he told you about about this business and what drives us to do this. Can you kind of explain a little bit of that to us? Uh, that's funny that, uh, uh, as I don't tell a lot of people, I guess, on camera, but uh, Dale said the three things that you need to know about the music business that drives our industry is it's about ego, greed, and ignorance. And a lot of times it's all three. And mm-hmm. boy, was he right. Um, and, but the, you know, the smart superstars know how to navigate around those and understand uh, the other ones you know, sadly don't have those long-term, you know, careers, but mm-hmm. um, I've seen a lot of that. It's been a great business to me. You know, I don't have any, I know some people in the entertainment business can have, you know, some very sad, you know, traumatic kind of stories. And I've been blessed to have a great career. If it was over tomorrow, I, how could I complain, you know, mm-hmm. uh, but I've, I'm more staffed up now than I've ever been. I got a great team a lot of more, a lot more of the responsibility is falling on the shoulders of the manager. So uh, we are, you know, had to staff up to offer those services and, mm-hmm. you know, it's a, an expensive model, but if I'm going to be playing the game, I'm, I want to win. And, you know, uh, it, 
it, it is a business too. So um, it's A&R, but then it's about, you know, common good sense, doing the right thing, you know, doing what you're supposed to do, what you promised to do, mm-hmm. working hard, you know, all those simple kind of boring sounding things, but it is so simple, you know, and, and, and a, a lot of artists aren't prepared for that grind that it, you know, when I first got into business, you could do a little to get a lot. And now you do a lot to get a little mm. because, you know, it's just getting slots at radio is really tough. It, 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 there, are hard, there are no slots. You have to take someone's to get one. Mm. Sometimes a record can take over a year to get through at radio. So we're all trying to find ways that, you know, radio is still the churn though. So, uh, you know, you've got to have that terrestrial hit, but, and you can't believe, I don't believe you can build careers based just on TikTok. And, you know, they are seeing that uh, we hear from record companies all the time. You got to be on TikTok. You got to be, we just hired a content guy that, that, you know, that comes with a strategy approach to this because, you know, we know that we still have to, you know, compete within certain, you know, whether it's Mm -hmm. TikTok, Instagram, Mm -hmm. you know, all those platforms. Social media is like its own strategic planning now. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of times, you know, it's just shooting from the hip. And you can have a great moment that just goes viral. What's the next one? The music is, okay, the the next one's about having another great song. You know, or just being cute on on TikTok isn't going to, to me, put, you know, make an act and put them into stadiums. Yeah. I'm probably going to ask you a question that I'm sure nobody has ever asked Well, here we go. What's the benefit of having salt in your pool? <laughs> That's a good question. You know, uh, it's funny because I, I, we're building a home right now and doing it. And, and, the, and the fad is to do, or, or the trend is to have saltwater pools, but mm. they, salt makes chlorine, I guess, but it also erodes equipment. So mm. I'm doing a pool that's not going to have saltwater base. Just wondering what the saltwater benefit was because I know nowadays a big thing is like, you know, there's a salt spa where you go in and you sit yeah. in a, you know, just a big salt block, what it is. And I was just wondering if there was some health benefit or something for having salt in your pool rather than just like chlorine. Yeah. Cause if you yeah. had the answer, I was going to start putting salt in my kid's blow up pool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was they, they, that's kind of a, a marketing thing that salt was softer on your skin and all that. And, and chlorine, mm. the old chlorine as a kid, you'd go into a pool and you know, your eyes would burn forever. Thank you very much for your time, Clint. It was great. And it's, it's always a delight when Todd gives us some yeah. tips to kind of lead you in. You didn't in, have anything too embarrassing. Yeah. I mean, did, yeah. It was just the gas money and uh, yeah. the, oh, yeah, we sweet. had to get, we had to get at least one George impersonation from you. <laughs> oh yeah. Man, George is, he was always, uh, and Kenny and I will, he'll call me some days and he'll, he'll, he'll get on the phone. Hey, Clint, this is George Moffat. What are we going to do up in chili coffee? <laughs> <laughs> Now, Kenny Chesney doing a oh, George Moffat. He does a good one. Yeah. That's he loves really funny. Boys. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, thanks for joining us. And we hope you have a success in the future, which you are, because you yeah. are a high powered Nashville <laughs> manager. Yeah. And we definitely hope to see you on the road soon. Yeah. Thank you. Well, let's do it. 
All right. Thanks, Clint. Take care, Clint. See ya. Bruce and I want to thank you for tuning in to our podcast, Which Way is Catering with Justine and Bruce. If you'd like to drop us a line, you can email us at whichwayiscatering at gmail.com or visit us at varietyattractions.com. A big thank you to our sponsors, Brannigan Inc. and Spectrum Weather Insurance. Which Way is Catering with Justine and Bruce. Served up by Variety Attractions, celebrating 60 years of entertainment excellence. That's fabulous.